ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this, the first episode of Breaking the News. I'm your co-host, Doug McKinty. Uh, you can find my stuff at theshiftnow.com. I'm generally the host of the Shift podcast. Uh, I'm joined today by co-host Paul at Space Station Earth. Uh, you can find his stuff at uh, declarepeace.org.uk backslash captain. I got it right. <laughs> yeah. And uh, today we're we're joined for this first episode by Tessa Lena of TessaFightsRobots.com. Uh, she is uh, living in the U.S. right now, but she's Russian-born, uh, so she has a great perspective uh, on all of this Ukraine stuff. I think that's going to be the focus of the show today. And uh, journalist Riley Wagaman, who's U.S.-born, but he is uh, living in Moscow right now. So uh, we get to have perspectives from from both sides. Uh, of that uh, of that life experience today. So uh, welcome everybody for coming on board. I think uh, the focus of the show is a little bit open-ended in terms of the fact that I wanna go around the table and ask people just what's on your mind uh, in terms of especially the, the recent current events. Uh, and then we'll get into, uh, uh, we'll just go with the flow from there. I think we'll, we'll definitely be getting into the Ukraine-Russia thing. So uh, Paul, you wanna go first and just let people know what you've been working on, what you're thinking. Well, hello, everybody. Um, yeah, it's great to have Tessa and Riley on. We were talking about this, Doug, weren't we? Um, just saying that it would be nice to have two guests that mirror each other. Mm -hmm. So Tessa's in America. She's from, uh, you're from Moscow, aren't you, Tessa? From Moscow, yeah. Yes. And Riley is from America and he's near Moscow. He's on the outskirts of Moscow. So you've got like, this kind of mirror stuff going on, which is really lovely. You get two different uh, perspectives, which uh, we're not going to see in the mainstream media, are we? We're not going to get to see people being interviewed in Moscow on the ground. And we're certainly not getting to see a lot of what's going on in, uh, in Ukraine, apart from people like Eva and uh, Vanessa. And, uh, and obviously, uh, we've got Patrick over there. We've got uh, a few people report reporting on the ground, but, you know, so we're not going to get a lot going on. Um, there's a couple of things I've been working on. I've been making notes and things. Um, I don't know whether anybody's seen uh, Zelensky's drunken rant uh, he released. It got like this kind of thing that was completely, uh, he was completely mad and drunk and stuff. And uh, I was, uh, oh, there's no screen sharing, so I'm not yeah, going to be able I'm... to show screens. But um, let's have a look. At the recent report, which was on AP News, uh, basically, it, this was yesterday, I think. It's uh, this is a classic. This is a ridiculous quote, and I, I was going to get a screenshot up, but not to worry. It just says, "No, no, I got it." Uh, this is as Here. the as the conflict drags on. Th this is the quote: "As the conflict drags on, Western officials and Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky have warned that Putin could deploy chemical agents. Could." He then said, "The world must react now." So uh, we've got somebody who is an actual president of a country not understanding basic physics, because if it hasn't happened, no one can react to it yet. Uh, you know what I mean? <laughs> I don't think he's a physics major, basically. I don't know whether he... Can I, uh, can I bring this up? Can I share it? Yeah, I think so. Should work now. Okay. Right. I'm going to do that. Let me see. Can you see anything? Yep. Oh, I've got I've got somebody on here. Look on on Twitter there. Look, um, but here's what I've been doing. These are my notes. <laughs> Great. Okay, uh, let's have a look at this. No, this is chemical weapons used from Syria war stoked Ukraine fears. So it's all about fear. There's nothing actually happening here. 
this is a classic piece of mainstream propaganda. Uh, I, look at the pop-ups. I hate this. <laughs> so we can see that, sort of like, you know, you see Zelensky is quoted as saying this, you know, saying, uh, you know, the world must react now to the possibility that Russia might do something. So you can't really react to something that hasn't happened. He's obviously wording it completely wrong, but he wants to emote the idea of reaction. I don't know what anybody else would think about that. I'm going to, how do I stop sharing this now? There we are. Okay. No. Stop share. There we are. We're back. We're back in the room. Did that okay. work? Was that as smooth as I thought it went? Okay? <laughs> I'm new to all Mostly. this. Mostly. Okay. Anyway, that's the kind of that's the thing I've been. I just want to introduce that story. It's very strange. Again, mm. we've got this chemical weapons uh, rearing its ugly head. You know, uh, what are people's thoughts? Riley, have you heard of anything going on over in Moscow? What's what's uh, happening with uh, the bio labs? Uh, I haven't heard much about. Uh... The, the bio lab stuff recently. I think that Russia, the United Nations, I read a few days ago, that they're passing around evidence that they allegedly collected, but I haven't heard much about it recently. It hasn't been really top story in Russian media, at least. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, there's been a kind of sh- uh, uh, screen shares of the uh, slide presentation, and more have been released, I think. I've seen a couple, and they look very convincing. But I just feel a bit sorry for Diljana, the Bulgarian journalist, who basically did all this work about three or four years ago. And this is really deep research. She's actually won a couple of awards for her work as well. Yeah. And, she's, uh, she's, well, just to, ahead, just to interrupt uh, that, sorry. she's been on top of this Biolabs thing for years. And I've been following her work for a long time. It's just so crazy to get to hear the news, especially here in the West, uh, where they pretend like none of this is happening when there are journalists out there that have been covering this biolabs thing for a long time. It's just over the top. I mean, it's, it's the propaganda is starting to drive me crazy. I'm <laughs> what I get on the mainstream press here in the U S just, uh, absolutely unreal. Uh, and the biolabs is just one of many, many stories that, uh, it makes no sense. What we're hearing here is not what's actually going on. And, and again, have been covered, uh, these topics uh, for a long time by journalists that have been doing really good work and their work is getting ignored. Sad well, to like, see. It looks like it's been, it's been taken, doesn't it? Her work has basically been taken by the Russians. Who've gone, right, we know you've got bio labs, but they're not going to, like, I feel a bit, so, I feel quite sort of glad that she hasn't been named by the Russians because that would be really bad. She's an investigative journalist and suddenly mm-hmm. they start using her work and say, look, look at this. Yeah, I'd be really worried about that if I was her. Um, but then we've got this other thing where we've got Victoria Newland a couple of weeks ago saying um, uh, we do have biolabs, but they're going to uh, the Russians are going to break into them and they're going to release all of the nasty things that are in the bio, bio labs. Uh, you know, completely forgetting the uh, forty years of history that the, the Russians have got with South Africa and Israel developing their own bioweapons program. <laughs> So it's like, I don't know, there's some really odd things going on in this news like that makes you think it's all just being made up on the fly, like somebody's writing the script as they go, like in Wag the Dog. Oh, quick, we've got to run with this. (laughs) From Air Force One with Jen Psaki sort of announcing things on Air Force One last week, which are just absolutely nuts as well. Tessa, have you had any thoughts on this, mate? Oh, I have many thoughts, and I think I'm going to completely hijack the conversation in an entirely different direction. Go for it. Russian. I think that's what we are good at. At least that's the reputation. So I'm going to do exactly that. So what I'm observing in the West 
is kind of the reverse side of the Russian culture. And it is fascinating because historically in the Russian culture, and we can even go before the Bolshevik revolution. So that's been kind of a signature of the Russian culture. People are usually split. And I'm talking educated people because peasants know better. They just do their thing and that's the wisest. But people who like go to universities and write stories and read books and write books. So they were usually historically split into two groups. One would say that Russia is amazing, special, and we're all fucked up, but we're special, we're poor, but we're spiritual, and the West is the devil. And then there's the other group that is the exact opposite, that would go, uh, uh, West is beautiful, whatever they do is perfect, and we are fucked up in a bad way, just like mm-hmm. we're Russian, therefore we can't do no good. So it's good, bad, very strongly black and white, completely opposite. And what I'm seeing in the West right now, it's that guilt is coming back. For example, people analyzing this war in Ukraine and Russia, which I, I think like personally, my biggest feeling I have about it is pain. Mm. I think it's my people. And essentially, at some point, Russians and Ukrainians, many centuries ago, there were no two nations. It was one people before nations even developed. So it's kind of my people fighting the cousins of my people. And politicians are doing their dirty thing in Russia, in the West, and perhaps in Ukraine, because I do not expect sainthood from human beings anywhere on that level of power. So politicians are playing with people's lives. Mm. And I have zero judgment for people on the ground, regardless of their ideology, whether it's pro-Russia, pro-West, pro-whatever. People are sincere. They're fighting for themselves the way they see fit. But from the politician's side, it's dirty games. And people are paying with their blood, with their, you know, with their livelihood. It's a war. And I don't care. Like, you know, there's lots of lots to say about geopolitics, this, that. But that's kind of like something that happens throughout history. People are paying with their butts. I have mm. friends on this side of the conflict. I have friends on that side of the conflict. I don't, I feel I'm not even, like, I'm not there. I'm not there being bombed from either side. So I try to be humble about it. Yeah. And I feel mostly pain. Now, when it comes to analysis, there's horrible propaganda in Russia. There's horrible propaganda in the West. And I'm pissed at both because they're both my homelands. So I'm entitled to be pissed at this propaganda and I'm entitled to be pissed at that propaganda. And... Now, when it comes to journalism on the West, whether it's mainstream or alternative, they go both, they go the opposite sides, just like the Russian two groups. One group says, okay, absolutely, it's clear that Russia is the devil and we're the good guys. And then the other group says, it's absolutely clear that Russia is the saints, they're trying to fight the greater set, which is total bullshit, they're not trying to fight any greater set. And, And I'm like, what? I mean, come on, like, first of all, people are actually like dying. And there's always politics about any conflict. There's always somebody who's trying to profit and build power and punditry and whatnot on any kind of human suffering. There's nothing new about that. That says nothing about Russia or the West or whatever. That says something about human nature. There are always assholes who try to build careers and human suffering. But it's not black and white. And the only thing that is mysterious in my side, so what's not mysterious is that on the high level, it's assholes on every side. <laughs> However, on the the mystery is 
whether there is genuine conflict between, say, the Western Great Reset, like Klaus Schwab's Great Reset, Prince Charles' Great Reset, and Putin's Great Reset, whether they're genuinely in conflict or whether they are secretly calling each other and saying, okay, like you take this, I take that, we'll pretend this, we'll pretend that, we'll throw soldiers here, everybody's going to be arguing. In the meanwhile, we'll run to the bank together. I don't know which of the two. I don't think it's possible for like a human being on any of our level to know, because if they're mm. having second secret phone calls, we can only hypothesize, use our whatever intuition, whatever. Yeah, right. know. So I like what I try to bring into this conversation here and elsewhere is kind of a degree of humility in the sense that we can be analysts at our best and try our best. And truth is extremely important. But ultimately, human beings are suffering. So that was yeah. my that was my throne speech. So yeah. <laughs> oh, excellent. Nice. Hey. Um, yeah, I'd like to I, I think my interpretation in terms of the Putin Russia Great Reset question is um uh, a little bit interesting because I feel like Putin could actually be almost being played by the Great Reset people. I mean, it's what what he's doing could be virtuous from his perspective, from the Russian perspective, and still playing into the hands of of the uh, of, of what the Great Reset is working to do. I mean, it, it, I think it's clear that um, the World Economic Forum guys, the the Great Resetters. You know they're promoting this Chinese system. They want they want the technocracy to come. I, I always go back to that um, Rockefeller Foundation document about the lockdown, uh, the lockstep document that came out like ten years over ten years ago now, uh, where they were describing you know the possibility of the virus coming out and what would happen and that the Chinese uh, system would be superior because they would be able to lock down so quickly and then they would have this problem. Uh, in Western democracies, because their philosophy of freedom would prevent them uh, from from implementing the kind of lockdowns necessary. Uh, and so it just appears to me that what Russia is doing is playing into the hands of um, being able to take out these Western democracies, but in terms of the ruble thing, in terms of taking out the, the dollar as the uh, world reserve currency, uh, I'm seeing that the actions on the ground in, in Ukraine, even if Russia's actions are virtuous and, and Putin believes it, you know, he's working for a multipolar world uh, against the evil American empire. Uh, all of this is still oh, working into the hands. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, it's all still playing into the hands of the World Economic Forum and the idea of the Great Reset and the coming technocracy. So, uh, you know, if he was going against them, They'd probably be, you know, they'd be maneuvering to stop him. But instead, uh, this conflict is actually promoting exactly the direction that they want to go. So, uh, you know, so he can make these moves. He can kick Soros out of uh, out of Russia. He can, um, you know, he can he can make these plays uh, that are against Western imperialism, against the NATO alliance, uh, and still it's working in the favor uh, ultimately of what the World Economic Forum wants. So they're letting him do it. If if he was really fighting them, then they wouldn't let him do it. I, I just I feel like these, you know, the economic powers that that are represented by the World Economic Forum, I think they're just way more powerful than any particular nation state. So if it wasn't playing out in their favor, they would be maneuvering against it. Can I do you think that? Uh, I'm sorry, sorry, Tess. I was just going to say, uh, did, did anybody see what Z, uh, Xi Jinping said yesterday? He'd done another speech, and basically he was saying. 
that he wants to see the world in synergy and uh, and, and and he's tired of a uni- unilateral order sure. and he wants to see more multilateral. And this is very odd. He seems to be very confused about what NATO is because it's a multinational alliance, a multilateral alliance, as is BRICS. So he I, I, seems to be wanting to call America the Pentagon unilateral and simultaneously NATO unilateral when it's not. Uh, we've got a very confused messaging coming out from these so-called elites who seem to be changing the playbook day by day. I, I often think that like what Russia has done should have been done probably about seven years ago, maybe six years ago, and they've left it far too late. Um, 14,000 people have died in Donbass region and Luhansk. Mm. And um, if, I, if, if you could just imagine uh, setting, the, uh, setting the whole thing in, in Northern Ireland and, and let's say the Irish government in the 70s got completely infiltrated with the IRA, then set up uh, paramilitaries on the edge of the uh, Northern Ireland border and started shelling Northern Ireland, do you think the UK would wait 14 years or eight years to invade? Because I don't. So it's very odd that Russia should leave it and also sort of not really start um, investigating and putting people in to sort of see how Nazi infiltrated Ukraine's political system had become. Because I've seen some nightmare uh, uh, um, sort of reporting coming about the anti-Semitism in Ukraine, going right through schools, through theatres. Uh, there's some really uh, very worrying trends going on there. We see the trend of uh, kind of like the, the uh, municipalities and the local councils being infiltrated by very bullyish. And when we say Nazi, I mean, this could mean anything from corrupt mafia types to paramilitaries. When they want to don their um, Nazi-esque uh, Bandera-supporting stuff, they do. When they want to be secretive and drug dealing and people trafficking um, people, corrupt criminals, they can do that as well. Because I have it here. We have it in this country. And you can see them change their hats every now and again. It's just corruption and criminality. But then they paramilitarize when they want to gather the tribe together. Sure. Um I find what's going on on a level with the reset and everything else, it's very, very useful. For, on a number of levels, it serves the Great Reset into the Fourth Industrial Revolution. It suits a lot of people. It suits them on a level where, where millions of people could be uh, migrating across borders. We're looking at thousands now. We're seeing stories from the Scotsman saying um, the Scottish uh, Border Patrol is so it's it's got so lax with people coming in, the immigrants. It's terrible. We need to upgrade it, and of course. What they're going to upgrade it to? It's going to be digital ID, isn't it? It just seems to be an yeah. excuse to bring in digital ID everywhere. And these thousands and thousands of people who are suffering because of it. That seems to me to be disaster capitalism. Right. You know? Let's, uh, um, Riley, Riley, what do you think? And then we'll hear from Tessa again. Um, I Well, first I want to say I, I really admire uh, Tessa's uh, urge to seek a humility during these times when I feel like people are so polarized on these issues, you know, and causing so much. I think that there's a lot of anger and confusion and I really admire Tessa's perspective on this. And if I may say so, she's also looking very elegant this evening. (laughs) I should have worn a tie. (laughs) Um, What a kiss up. Thank you. Oh, the halo. The halo is the most important. That's right. The halo. It's working for you. It's the perfect yeah, setup. You know, it's... So I live outside of Moscow. Uh, you know, when we talk about the conflict in Ukraine, for me, it's like... 
it's a very, very difficult topic to talk about for me personally, just because I feel like um, there's so much uncertainty and also I don't even know how to put it properly. This feeling that what is occurring now is we could be facing, I mean, the consequences are going to be with us for years. I think that this idea that when it first began, this conflict first began, that it would be over soon, it would be sort of this cakewalk, which I believe many, many people had. You know, I have to say this, I'm just speaking honestly, I'm not making judgments of anyone. It had a very sort of COVID lockdown feel. Like the people who were supportive of lockdown in the first days were like, but 14 days to flatten the curve, it's all over, you know, and then we move on, stop complaining. It's, it's maybe it's uncomfortable or, you know, it's not so nice, but it'll be over soon. We'll go back to normal life. We're not going back to normal, guys. You know, like in this war, I think more than anything else has shown that. And it's it's tragic. And Tess is absolutely right that there's a huge amount of suffering going on right now. I mean, obviously, the people on the ground, Ukraine, first priority. But, you know, even in Russia, you know, uh, Alexei Kundrin, who is this old, like, neoliberal who has been in the Russian system forever, who is sort of like the government's main auditor, came out the other day. And he's like, it'll take at least two years for our economy to be able to, to like, restructure to deal with what has happened here. Two years. Uh, We have inflation at 17.5% in Russia. 17.5% inflation. Um, it's not a joke for millions of Russians who live on pensions, which were already pathetically small. Uh, you know, when you, you have to make choices of what you're going to eat, basically, you have imported medications that are now prohibitively expensive. I mean, there's so much human suffering going on right now. And I feel like there seems to be this like sort of, people are really focused on how to justify it from both sides, from both sides, you know, like there's this obsession in the west with like we need more need to pump more weapons into ukraine we have to do everything we can and then you know on the other side it's sort of like we need you know to destroy the west and it's like what what is going on you guys you know like we're i just consider myself a peasant you know like i don't i don't see but you know i'm just a peasant i'm not going to pretend i'm anything special (laughs) And I see, you know, the guy in Kharkiv or whatever, you know, who got his house blown out by whether it's Ukrainian or Russian artillery doesn't make a difference. That guy's my brother, you know, some unvaxxed Ukrainian in Kharkiv is like my bro. I don't know, you know, who am I supposed to be looking to for salvation here? It's just a it's just a tragedy all around. And, um, you know, it's just. What can what can be said? And the problem is, you know, I think that we also there's a tendency where we want to we want to make sense of it on both sides. Like the people who are supporting Zelensky want to rationalize it, even though the Ukrainian government is gross and disgusting. Uh, I think that people who are trying to rationalize like why Russian Russia went in, in my personal view, it's becoming more and more difficult to do that. I'm just being honest. I feel like the Russians are really like almost on a daily basis at this point. Are giving new reasons why they invaded Ukraine. Uh-huh. It's like, and and the problem here, it's like, uh, what do we know? What where this is leading, and we have absolutely no idea. And unfortunately, my my fear is that uh, no, we're we're all gonna lose 
this one. Yeah. I don't I don't know who's winning this. You know, Zelensky kind of um, I think Biden said last week, I think they announced that they weren't going to send jets in as because that would, um, you know, uh, uh, make the situation even more worse. But now they're going to send 20 jets in. So that's yeah. what they want to do. They're and sending you know, five hundred million dollars worth of arms in again. You know, and here's, here's the thing, you know, about Donbass. And again, I'm not trying to be uh, I don't want to sound heartless at all because I've been to Donbass. I know <laughs> that there's real there's real suffering there for many years. You guys know I was I was curious. I looked it up yesterday. Hey. How many civilians died in uh, the Donetsk People's Republic and Lugansk People's Republic in, in 2021? Does anyone know? It it's actually 20, twenty-five yeah. people. Right. Twenty-five people in a single year. So this is what I'm saying. Every single one of those deaths is a tragedy and basically and probably in a crime. I mean, they were killed in in a in a horrible conflict that should have been resolved many years ago. I mean, you have situations now where a single a single artillery barrage is killing more than that in a single mm. day. Now, right. You know, and and again, it's like this. It's very similar to the sort of lockdown phenomenon where people were like, we have to stop the virus no matter what, no matter what the cost is. We have to lock everyone down. Yeah. And we're ending up, look, you know, I was reading the other day, uh, this happened, uh, the Russian government came out with a report right before the war started, mid-February, and they said in 2020, just in 2020, 100,000 Russians, uh, there's 100,000 cases of un uh, unreported, undetected cancer dangerous cancers that were never detected because routine medical care and screenings were canceled because of covid because yeah. russians weren't allowed to do get regular checkups because of covid and now a hundred there's a hundred thousand undetected cancer cases in this country that's just in 2020 alone so when you think about it like when you try to rationalize what's happening the level of destruction and death happening in ukraine right now yeah. we're fighting over a conflict that killed 25 people in a single year and there's a hundred hundred thousand people in Russia who have un un you know they have Melania cancer that n they'll never know about before it's too late. And you know, I'm, again, I'm not. It's I, again, I'm really not trying to be judgmental here. I'm just trying to think out loud. But it's just like what what is happening? Like, what yeah, is happening yeah. To the world? I I fell prey, Riley, to uh, exactly what you're talking about. I thought you know, hey, uh, take you know a, a really quick action on Russia's part get right. in, liberate the Dunbass. I did, you know, at first we were all hearing those statistics, 15,000 people have died from the Ukrainian shelling. Well, like, as you've pointed out, we, I found out later, 99% uh, of those was it's right in that 2014-15 and hasn't yeah. really been that big of a deal. Uh, right. Last year, as you say, 25 people. So it's interesting that the timing of all of this is happening now. Um, right. And, but also... Uh, again, like I fell prey to that really quick two weeks, get in and out. Now it's been what, almost two months and, uh, and they seem to be getting bogged down. I'm starting to, th I was thinking, well, you know, Putin is clearly going after this port city of Mariupol and that's been a, a big situation. They've been bogged down there. It's taking a long time. I'm still hoping that, you know, once they clear, once they can get Mariupol, then they'll pull back and that'll be the end of it. But um, that now the West has had time to put billions of dollars worth of weaponry into the whole conflict, which is just going to make it last 
longer and longer and the longer it lasts, the worse this is going to be for everyone. Let's uh, Tessa, let's give Tessa a chance. What, what are your thoughts? Uh, thank you for giving me a chance. It is so kind. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I, I want to thank Ori and I want to thank Riley because, well, I guess it's known that we're thinking kind of similar patterns about this thing. And uh, so first of all, I want to speak as a Russian. Like any conversation that I hear from anybody that says that Putin is motivated by something noble, that he cares about the country, I don't know whether to laugh or to cry in response uh-huh. because that's just not true. Like if somebody cared, he might, he definitely cares about the prestige because that's the ego. But there's a big difference between caring as a politician about the prestige of your country because it reflects on you and how your buddies in the upper echelon treat you and caring about the people who live in your country. As a Russian, I can speak that Russian politicians, none of them care about the people. None of them. They're right. cynical as fuck. They've been messing with the people for centuries under different regimes. And I'm sure there's an odd politician here and there, maybe on the local level or going through a phase when they're young and naive and bright eyed and bushy tailed, perhaps. Like, it's possible. Everything happens under the sun. But as a rule, none of them care about the people. And how the war veterans have been treated, I mean, like, Riley, you wrote about it. But also, I mean, like, I know, because my grandparents were in the war. My grandfather fought in the war. And eventually, Russia carried the bulk of defeating the Nazis, right? And I came to America, and I discovered that America won World War II. I was like, what? Anyway, right. so, <laughs> everybody does their propaganda. I'm like, I'm sure I got my share of my propaganda, and I just took it in. I'm, I'm sure that's always the case. But nonetheless, so my grandparents physically uh, were in the war. Well, my, my grandfather was in the war fighting. He was wounded. He like suffered for the rest of his life from the wounds. My grandmother was a nurse in the hospital. So like that's personal history. That's every grandparent of every child that I grew up with. Everybody was in the war. The suffering, the pain, the women who had to live without men for the rest of their lives because the men were killed off. And the joylessness that resulted from that, that like actually it was not just the murder and the the economic suffering, it was also the emotions because people who spend their entire lives essentially struggling, women who did not have sex for the rest of their lives because their husbands were killed off. Sure. And so that impacted how they raised their children, that impacted how their children raised their children, that gloom that was centuries old, that was delivered to me when I was born into this world. And Mm. then it took me years to figure it out. So I have beef with that entire structure of joylessness and suffering and war and abuse. And politicians, I'm sorry, like that, they they don't care about people. They use people as cannon meat on either side. That's true for Germans, that's true for Russians. And I am careful about speaking about Ukrainian politics because like, I don't really know it intimately because I'm not there and I've never been to Ukraine and I have no idea. I just assume that they're as corrupt as anybody else because they come on top of the Soviet Union. And I don't know anything that came on top of the Soviet politics that was not corrupt to the most corrupt degree. So I just assume that it works like how it always worked in history. Like mm. there's historical, if there's small countries, like small kingdom, and there would be individual aspiring politicians and they would calculate which empire would help them the most for their personal elevation and then they would build alliances and sure. they would put their talking points around that so i assume it's a case of that 
And it seems like everything that I read and see about Ukrainian politics supports my theory that it's just a case of personal elevation and ambitions and trying to make alliances. So one politician would think America will help me the best. So I'll say I'm pro-democracy, pro-West. And then the other one is thinking, okay, Putin will help me the best. So I'm going to talk about our alliance with the Slavic brothers or whatever. But it's all bullshit. Like, <laughs> it's all bullshit. They just want their personal thing. And people are suffering. So going back to you know, where I started this speech. So I do not believe for a second that anybody's trying to do anything good on the level of high politicians. So it's just like, I don't know, just like Black Lives Matter as a movement, they use the suffering and the actual racism and the actual historic suffering to justify whatever they, they, they want to push. The suffering is real. Their cause, I'm not so sure. Right. Similar here. So I think, like, my personal focus is, again, humility love for all and trying to understand people politicians can go to the moon for all i care but people i think it's very cruel and I actually feel bad for people who are ukrainian who have maybe like who say in the u.s their friend they have families in kiev who are terrified of fleeing and now the whole freedom community tends to say, oh, like Putin is good, he was justified to invade. Like imagine being in their place where their friends through the two years of COVID say, oh, and by the way, we're perfectly fine that your family's been bombed. Like that's like unconceivable. So I think that we really should, I mean, we should, I mean, like I, that's what I do and that's what is right for me. Yeah. Uh, like really, like, trying to curb up arrogance and it's very comfortable to be a smart analyst it's like this position where it doesn't hurt and it's it's a natural tendency to try to make sense of the world as riley said it's completely natural it's admirable understanding the truth is admirable but i think there's a layer to that we should just like almost like curb our inner transhumanist curb our inner control freak and just say like i have no idea sometimes i have no idea is a good approach and then from there, just try to build from the heart. I don't know if it makes sense. I'm just like, that's no, I, I definitely appreciate the, and I'm really appreciating this conversation because I did have a, I mean, I, I uh, had that tendency to be a Putin supporter. I, I, when I saw what happened in Syria, the way that the U.S. was going in Syria, the red line was crossed. It appeared there was going to be a U.S. invasion. Uh, and then the way Putin kind of checkmated the Obama administration at the time by coming in and saying, oh, we're going to help you, uh, you know, bomb the terrorists. And he brought the Air Force in. I thought he averted, um, you know, what could have been a real bloodbath in Syria. And so I had respect. But um from you know, I am hearing that there's a reality here, as you say, Tessa, that politicians are really playing a, a larger game, and it's not they, they can appear virtuous, and occasionally maybe there's even an action here or there that does uh, help people, but by and large, the actual human suffering that happens out of these political games uh, really should be in the in the forefront, and it's all uh, ultimately it's a bunch of bullshit. A lot of people are getting just, just, you know, run over by these, by these, um, political national, uh, games that are going on that really, they're not good for the, for the average person. And, and those are the people that we should be focusing on Paul. Well, yeah, I wanted to, uh, just say how much I admired Tessa's stance. I think that's brilliant. Uh, I totally agree. My family, uh, same, same generation. I think we are Tessa. I'm 52. Um, my nan and granddad, my granddad fought in the Eighth Army over in Egypt and uh, and Italy. 
And um, yeah, uh, my dad was born in Blenheim Palace as one of the children moved out of the London area. He born there. Um, so, you know, we've got history of uh, a deal with a war. All my nans, all my aunties and stuff knew how to cook and make do. We had larders and we knew how to, and I've grown up with it. I know how to sew and cook and look after myself and deal with basics. It's been a good, uh, a good lesson. But they, they never forgot um, what the war did. They, they, uh, they still, still kept with them. You know, they kept with them all the ideals of, of make and do and try and survive because it was tough. Um, I do think that, like, as they always say, war is the last, it is the failure, isn't it? It is the, it's the prime failure of, yeah. of what we'd see as civilised society. Now, like I said with the Gandhi quote the other day, Gandhi was asked, what does he think of civilization?" And he said it, he thought it'd be a good idea. Yeah. And I think, it's, I think that stands now. I think what we're looking at is a failure or a success of the political classes that have been sort of um, taken over by quangoism, by private partnerships, by getting this PR glossy idea over real people's lives that they have no idea how they are run. They're never on the ground level, the people running, running the show now. I think we've got a complete disconnect. And uh, it's looking like that could spread for a year. Well, it is. I mean, look at the Great Reset. Look at what's going on with uh, COVID. Nobody, nobody knows what's going on, on the ground with real people. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, this is a war, and it's it, this this Ukraine situation was labelled an invasion, but really it's a war because they were pumping arms into that area for years and years and years. You know, I mean, they're they're saying now, even CNN, <laughs> the, the long forgotten CNN, it looks like, are saying that they they think they they can't trace some of the arms that are going on going on in there. Now I know for a fact, and if you ask Scott Ritter this, every single thing that comes out of the Pentagon, any any arms munitions have to be tracked. They have to be RFID'd so they know where they go. They know where these arms are going. Um, yet suddenly they'll become lost and very useful for a future conflict, no doubt. Um, we've got all sorts of reports coming with satellite images saying that we've got mass graves. Yet like if you were a modern trained army now being labelled as thugs and just morons on the, on the ground. These are modern trained armies. Look at how people train. People seem to have got, this is a complete example of the disconnect between the common person reading fake news who doesn't know how the army trained, who doesn't go to see briefings done by generals, look at the, or see the glossy PR that surrounds the weapons these people are using at the arms trade fairs. Right. The real people on the ground who are on the they are trained. They are modern army. They don't shoot hundreds of people and bury them in the ground for satellites to see. You know, this is just like it's like, come on, guys. You know what? What they're saying is that there is a guerrilla warfare going on and it's lost control. And quite frankly, without any decent reporting on the ground, we're not going to know what's going on. Mm -hmm. And that is, for me, a direct replay of what happened at the end of the Second World War. Nobody knew what was going on. I, I frankly sometimes wonder if all of this and, and this whole thing, I mean, the war profiteering and the arms sales, I mean, it just could be driving the whole thing. I mean, they're making every, every time I hear, you know, the U.S. is now given, what, three and a half billion dollars worth of weapons. Well, who are the guys that are making those billions of dollars? I mean, these weapons yeah. sales guys, you know, are, are they just driving this? They're going to prolong this for as long as they can because they're making millions and millions of dollars. Riley? Well, what I fear, oh, sorry, go, go ahead, Tessa. I mean, no, I... like what I fear, and that is my proprietary conspiracy theory and a very sad one, is that somebody in high chairs wants to install the Middle Eastern situation yeah. in Ukraine and a conflict yeah. that just keeps feeding the beast forever. 
And then there's already enough mutual hatred, which to me is it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. Like Russians and Ukrainians not getting along to me is just like it's a travesty. It's horrible. And but there's already enough dislike. So where it's like when a longer brother is like you're an asshole, you're an asshole. So that conflict psychologically mm-hmm. cannot be fed for a long time. And what a profitable thing that is, as you mentioned. And anything, like any kind of aspect of the fourth industrial revolution can be justified by that. So from the standpoint of the most evil person in a very high chair, that is pretty much a gem. It's it's a treasure. It's a conflict that just goes on, that can drive oil prices, whatever, move on to proverbial green, to digital IDs, to any kind of surveillance, like anything that they want to do can be justified by that. Right. Yeah, it reminds me of the never-ending war, George Orwell, right? 1984. Exactly. Well, yeah. Riley, do you want to... Can I just say... Um, All right, but I want to give Riley a, a chance. <laughs> yeah, sorry, mate. I just wanted to say, just, just bouncing off of what Tessa just said there, I mean, like, we've got this kind of Pentagon-run, neocon-led, like, obvious war against Russia and China that is the background to all of this, right? We've got this multilateral NATO versus BRICS coming on, you know? So there's, there's always this kind of Wes Clark, uh, a rogue state, let's get rid of Syria, Iraq, Iran, North Korea, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Right? And that's always the background as well. So we've got this kind of weird kind of Ukraine could have been if and I and I do believe that Soros and Horoshin, who um, Bogdan Horoshin, who is the grandfather of Ukraine, really, and wanted to form a modern Ukraine with Soros back in 92. You know, they wanted to see uh, Ukraine grow into a kind of early Turkey, like Turkey has become the middle ground between Asia and Europe. Right. And they wanted to see Ukraine uh, be a northern version of that. And so it was it could like, you know, be there as a bastion between Europe and, 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 and Asia. And uh, it's failed. And um, one has to ask, uh, you know, the neocons and the rise of the neocons at the similar time of 92 through to 2001, 2002. It can't be ignored that they wanted to nix that. And so I think Soros and the neocons were at odds and Kissinger's somewhere in the middle there. But, you know, obviously I'm doing that kind of an analyst thing, Tessa, there. But, um, you know, completely devoid of humanity. Sorry. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But I just kind of wonder, you know, the end game. Uh, you know, playing fifth dimensional chess with these morons. I mean, like, you know, with China sort of angling with Taiwan as well now coming into the news a little bit more with um, that. Well, I've got one of these stories marked down here, Lindsey Graham, when everybody's ears should prick up when they hear Lindsey Graham's just been to Taiwan, basically saying, hey, guys, you know, we're going to fight China and we'll be here if we need you because Lindsey Graham was back in Ukraine doing exactly the same thing with the Ukrainian Azov Battalion in 2017. And that's only like, you know, that ain't so long ago. So Lindsey Graham is back over in Taiwan now doing exactly the same thing, stoking. Are we losing, Paul? I think maybe the sometimes the electricity goes out there in, in Cyprus, so we may have to continue without him. <laughs> but uh, uh, Riley, do you want to do you want to comment on what we've been talking about? Um, I don't know if I have anything specific more to add on just on this, but I mean, again, going, I think going back to Tessa's comment about just sort of how we should look at, you know, sort of the, the motivations behind what, what is going on on both sides, 
you know, I'll give maybe a concrete example of this, just as someone living in Russia. Um, I mean, I hear, for example, and by the way, I completely agree with this assessment, you know, when Joe Biden says that he wants to send, you know, $800 million worth of arms to Ukraine. I mean, it's it's obscene when you have, what, like a 20% child poverty level in the United States, right? That you're yeah. shipping arms to Ukraine. The same thing is true in Russia, though. You know, it's like 20, 20, 20 something like 21, 22% of children in Russia live under the poverty line, you know? Uh, and so it's difficult for me objectively to think that so all of this is being done because the Russian government cares about people. It just is, just objectively, when you just look at the reality uh, in Russia. And, you know, it's also, I don't want to, funny is not the right word, but um, think about the fact, I was thinking about this the other day, you know, Ukraine is one of the most, it's one of the most unvaxxed countries i think in europe i think they had like a 35 percent vax rate even though they had quite strict restrictions they were they were quite resistant to it um although i'm pretty sure that they probably forced their military to get vaxxed in russia the entire all all military in fact all conscripts are forced to get vaccinated um so basically you have like two armies fighting each other who were forced to get <laughs> injected with the unproven dangerous goo sure. fighting to see which side has the like triumphs but there's still 20 percent child poverty it's like what is the, what, what's going on like i mean you just step back and it's like wow why can't we just deal with the basics so then maybe we can start like beating each other up i don't know it's just it's just more and more these days i just i, I just it's so it's so hard to look at it through a geopolitical lens and it's more just accept like this acceptance that Things have really gone off track, in my opinion. I sure. think that over the last two years, it's just blatantly obvious that we are, I mean, first of all, we were like considered biohazards that could be experimented on. And now we're meat shields, you know? And it's like, when, where's the human dignity right. for anyone? Yeah, so, I think. I think it's interesting, uh, from my understanding, too, as a result of the conflict, the Ukrainians now are starting this kind of social credit system and this vaccine passport system. So it actually may ultimately be a way to get this largely unvaxxed country uh, to be kind of force vaccinated in order to get a lot of these um, these their basic needs met through this through this new technocratic system that they're using the yeah. conflict to, to implement. And while I don't want to I don't want to claim this was like the intention, but if you think about it, it's interesting how you have, I guess, now more than four million refugees flooding into Europe from Ukraine who are probably going to have to get vaccinated at some point in order to use public services in Europe. Yeah, so if they had stayed exactly. in Ukraine, they probably wouldn't have been. I mean, there would have been been easier to resist. Now they're completely at the mercy of the, of the state, which requires the genetic goo, you know. So it's just wow, what a mess! Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Mess. You know, there was one comment that I saw yesterday, and that's going to be my sole geopolitical contribution of meaning. And uh, Edward Dodd posted something, and I would have to go and read in more detail. But he saw some very interesting activity related to natural gas commodities that were preceding the wars. So his conclusion, and you know, he is the former BlackRock that guy. So his right. conclusion was that it looked like the war might have been pre-agreed upon based on that financial activity, which again, 
it seems like it's at least 50% it could have been true because it just works too well to justify everything that every self-respecting conspiracy theorist was thinking was thinking was going to happen and now it's happening and it makes then the pain and that mutual anger even more tragic sure because it's like the middle ages all over again maybe they never ended at least in the middle ages the kings had the decency to go and fight now yeah. they don't do that right. so, I Sorry, I don't want to interrupt. Go ahead. No, go ahead. I, I just wanted to add on to your comment, Tessa, that, you know, it, it is so interesting how, uh, I mean, think of all the ways that this conflict perfectly fits into this great reset agenda. I mean, we have very serious, severe food shortages coming up. Right. I mean, the, the energy, you now have not just a sort of, you, you've taken the whole ener green energy transition to this, like, sort of almost like uh, orgasmic morality, you know, where it's like, we have to stop using energy. Otherwise, like, we'll fund Putin's war, you know, and it's, and so they tried the whole, you know, Greta Thunberg thing, and it just didn't really work that well. And now it's like, you're, you have to stop the killings in, in Ukraine. And I mean, it's just, if you just go down the list, and also with the digital, by the way, with digital currencies, by the way, in Russia, um, the current chief of the central bank was just reappointed for another five years and one of the first things she said was that they're going to start rolling out the central bank digital currency to cut back on like corruption allegedly you know so they'll be able to track money better now of course so, yeah, you know, they, but what's so funny is that you know i was even and also they say it'll be used to bypass western sanctions and you know it's so funny because i was writing about this before this war started and i'm like look guys they're they want to roll out this digital currency. They're saying that it's going to be a good thing to use for sanctions. Like, this is a little bit creepy. And it's happening, you know? It's yeah. exactly happening as, they, as, as everyone predicted. So, Right, coincidentally. Coincidentally, they predicted it, and now it's happening exactly as they predicted. And this Ukraine situation, I mean, the, exactly. The food shortages, the energy shortages, the supply chain issues the, the uh, potential collapse of the dollar as world reserve currency. All of these are going to push in the CBDCs in every country and yeah. the VAX passports and the social credit system and the whole thing. I mean, it's, and so, yeah, I mean, just a mountain of evidence pointing towards the fact that the, the great reset is very excited to have this conflict and everything is working exactly, potentially exactly as planned. Exactly. You know, and by the way, Oh, go ahead, Riley. Sorry, I was going to say, whether it was planned this way or not, I mean, it's so convenient. Yeah. You know? So it doesn't, even, it doesn't even matter at this point. Right. Like, wow, what a great, what a yeah, what a great reset. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what a great reset. No, oh. but what, what I wanted to say is also, I think, I don't know, well, I'm not in Russia, but I hear stories, right, Riley, you know how it is in Russia. I'm here in New York, and the prices are crazy, and electricity prices are crazy, but nonetheless, you know, we have food. Everything else compared, like comparing to having no food, we're doing fine. But other smaller countries, countries in Africa, countries, I mean, I had a cab driver from Africa. Yeah. It was like food is so expensive, it's like impossible. And so that war, a part of it is that the entire world is actually thrown into. And again, we're living in empires. We might bleed, but we might survive, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Non-empire countries, 
I mean, yeah, yeah, shithole countries, right? (laughs) I mean, they they are doing they are doing really really badly, and that's cool. Yeah, we just that's why we lost Paul, right? Cyprus is having rolling blackouts right now, rolling brownouts. I mean, he just like every evening he 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 runs out, he loses power because this is what's going on and and their economy there is just basically on the brink of complete collapse. So, the smaller countries are really getting hit hard right now. So, I mean, the, the conclusion is I think we're back to our peasant role yeah. and it's a good I mean, like I'm using it as an opportunity to contemplate that maybe the history never ended and it didn't end the moment we were born and the Middle Ages are just carrying on. Yeah. I mean, this is a this is a something that I've actually been writing about. And maybe we can spend the last I think maybe we we can keep going as long as we want to. But another 30 minutes or so, at least um, I've been actually writing a series. I'm calling it on populism just because I think that populism. I've been going into the history of the populist movement, like the 19th century history of it and comparing it to to what is called conspiracy theory today. I think I'm just getting tired of having to call myself a conspiracy theorist when I have these conversations and I'm looking for like, what is the historical relationship and this populist movement, you know, going back now for almost 200 years, uh, Andrew Jackson fighting the, the, uh, the uh, second charter of the national bank in the United States is, is typically considered kind of the foundation. And we're still, you know, those of us who are conspiracy theorists usually look at the, uh, at the central banking complexes as a huge issue today. So I think there's a lot of parallels, but um, what I've been talking about is this, you know, using a top down paradigm. I'm so frustrated with the left, right paradigm because it makes us all argue all the time. I'm, I'm so tired of the arguing. You know, it's as like we've been really getting down to this. The heart of the matter here is that there are rich people that are playing these games with all the rest of our lives, like all and all of us. Like, why are why do we argue about the minutiae of this or that? Is Putin right? Is, you know, is NATO right? Are any of the none of these guys are virtuous players? What's happening is the common people, just as you point out, Tessa, are peasants in a feudal system? Like, did anything ever actually change from from 500 years ago when colonialism, you know, when European colonialism really kicked off? This is just a continuation. We were born into this system. I mean, we. I think people need to kind of wake up to this. I've been frustrated even, you know, with the whole, again, the left-right paradigm, this whole capitalism versus communism, which drove the Soviet Union versus the United States, the whole Cold War. Like, is that even real? Like, isn't all of this just feudalism? And has it always been feudalism? When did we ever, you know, when did we stop? <laughs> well, so. when it comes to those definitions, the most perfect linguistic framework that I know of is Stephen Newcomb's system of domination because it covers pretty much everything. And because he is native, I mean, he his, his ancestry is native, so he he can perceive it from that perspective, uh-huh. how the free existence of his people in the Americas has been hijacked by the great resetters of that time. Right. And, and that's just like, to me, it is the best if one wants to think through that intellectually in terms of not left and right, not capitalism versus socialism versus this nation, that, that nation, but just the essence of domination that pre- presumes that. The state exists because the people are no longer free 
Yeah. And this is something that, in my opinion, is unresolvable politically, because whenever somebody is coming on a white horse or the pretense of a white horse, and they say, oh, we're going to liberate you from the bad guys, and and then even a worse thing happens. And then the new boss is worse than the old boss, and they're right. more hungry, and it's just like even the things that worked in the past somewhat, even that is broke. I mean, so... Politically, it seems like it's unresolvable. And my whole theory about the Great Reset is actually existentially is that we are dealing with it because we have unresolved spiritual, like fundamental issues. Yeah. And we are so far away from home. And this horror and oppression and this total like abuse is a sign for us. Like the predators are allowed to be that abusive so that we wake the fuck up. And we wake the fuck up not to another set of talking points like, oh, now it's capitalism, socialism, whatever, ism, 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 this, that, that technology, that technology. I mean, that's all technicalities and they all might be true or to some degree true. But the point is not that. The point is that abuse is like fundamental. It's like on the spiritual level. We're walking so far and we need to like wake up to relating to people as people. Forget about ideas. Like, you know, there can be ideas. We can argue. We can enjoy that sports, like, in a fun way. Like, let's argue, whatever. That can be fun. But not allow anybody to carry our heads away to where we hate our brothers. So. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like you were talking about earlier, these wars, these generational wars cause generational trauma. And until, you know, there's got to be at some point where one of the generations says, wait a minute, you know, that we got to end the cycle of violence. We actually have to go through like a healing process uh, and and stop allowing really these wealthy people to just continue to abuse the lower classes and use us as cannon fodder in these uh, never ending wars. Oh, exactly. And by the way, my computer is complaining about low power. So I'm going to do something okay sounds good plug it in so yeah we'll give riley a chance to comment what are you thinking riley yeah i mean it's again it's in a way you know it's almost like we're um we're trying to reinvent the wheel in a way because uh you know when i when when this war started and uh i don't know just been feeling like really anxious and confused and you know, sad about what I'm yeah. witnessing and how I can't feel hopeless in, in a way and sort of horrible things are happening way beyond my control. And I started like thinking, like, I wonder what, I wonder what Tolstoy would say if he was around. And amazingly, Tolstoy wrote this very famous essay about the Russo-Japanese war in 1905, uh, which was in a way similar to what's happening now because it was seen as this sort of salvation for the russian empire and unfortunately it didn't go according to plan and tolstoy wrote this this essay on why he totally didn't he thought this was a horrible idea this was a horrible death he literally this was the first sentence of this amazing essay again war again sufferings necessary to nobody utterly uncalled for again fraud again the universal stupefaction and brutalization of men. And he talks about how the Japanese are Buddhists who are told that they shouldn't kill human beings. And the Russians are Christians and they're taught that they shouldn't kill, you know, their fellow brothers. 
And these men live thousands of miles away from each other, and they're killing each other. And it's this very, very touching, soulful essay about how how could this be possible? Yeah. And it's it's but it's scary that you know, like Tolstoy is writing about this more 120 years ago. You know, <laughs> and so it's like, are we going to just keep going through this cycle, like forever? Right. And maybe Tenth was right. Maybe it's gotten so bad. Where it's like we're either facing annihilation as a species, or we get our act together, and maybe that's maybe we're close to something like that. Um, not to be like a doomer, but <laughs> maybe maybe this is a necessary process where things get so bad, so ridiculous, so inhumane. You know, I, I just again, again, I hate to even harp on it, but like, I mean, most of my blogs is talking about how I just, I'm just, utter, I'm absolutely in shock i'm so amazed by just how anti-human the last two years have been just profoundly anti-human in every way possible right and and it's 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 extremely scary to me that it's gotten this it's gotten this far and with this war it's just added this new level this new level that was almost incomprehensible you know two months really i mean it's so interesting how it's it's completely you know, consumed almost all media spaces. And yet two, two months ago, it was considered outrageous. It was considered outrageous to think that something like this could happen. I mean, they were like, you know, beat like sort of internet flame wars being like, how could you even suggest that Russia would go into Ukraine? Are you like a CIA stooge? Interesting. Well, I think. Interesting. Riley, like I completely agree with you. I think that the humility that it is bringing to us, like to me, that could be, the lesson that's kind of like the good side of the horrible thing. So there's a horrible thing, but I think if we look at it philosophically, and it is not easy because the pain and the suffering and the confusion are so genuinely huge. And it's almost hard to be philosophical about it when you're in the middle of it. It's but learning from other experiences it's you know like human beings generally are stubborn it's just how we are all of us you know smart stupid educated non-educated we're stubborn and if sometimes if something's not good for us love uh by the way i'm completely frozen oh can you hear me you're coming back so, yeah you're coming back yeah so on the level of nations, it could be the same thing, or in the level of species. So everything is so, like, so wrong. Everything, like, everything. The way our medicine is done, the way our, like, manufacturing technology, we abuse the earth in earnest, not in Greta speak, but, like, in earnest, we do horrible things. We do things that are like toxic. We're poisoning everything around us. We're poisoning ourselves. We're poisoning our neighbors. Like we're like everything is just so wrong. If you think about it, like if you compare it to the like, natural happiness and all the like, everything just like completely off. Mm -hmm. And it's been wrong for a long time. And because <laughs> you know we adjust so well. We just deal with it and we intake more abuse and we decide it's normal and then more abuse. I mean, it's just so, but at some point it piles up to the extent that like we can't take it anymore. And 
there have been obviously a lot of abuses and genocides and wars and horrible things throughout history, many, many, many. We're definitely not the first generation. But on a global level, perhaps it's the first time, at least in known history, maybe there were civilizations before that are destroyed, we don't know. But in our known history, it's the first time. And we're just like, I hope that we as, as a species start getting our shit together before it becomes just a total mess. Yeah. It just seems wise. Like it seems practically wise. And I do think that paying attention to like the humanity of other people and essentially not betraying our neighbors could be at the foundation of starting to solve this entire mess. And I think that geopolitics will follow the internals. In some mysterious way, that is my theory anyway, is that I, I think it's very difficult for a peasant to solve geopolitics. And I think like I am the one who's been writing about policy, like in transhumanism for years. So I totally like that's interesting. That's important to understand. Very important. But I think it's dangerous to get carried away with the analyst mindset and forget about people or start yelling at others because their idea about geopolitics is different. Like in my life, I've seen people with such a diverse range of ideas and half of them I thought are batshit crazy, like totally stupid. But maybe in 10 years, I thought they're not so stupid or maybe sometimes I thought they're even more stupid. But who cares? I can still find something to like talk to them as a human being, respect their soul, respect that they're on their own path. And I've done stupid things. Maybe it's their time right now to do stupid things. So, and I mean, like, obviously, intelligently, if somebody is abusive, then I have to protect myself. Like, that's that's a given. But not become, like, too arrogant just because I've read certain books or whatever I wrote about transhumanism before. Like, some other, I mean, like, so what? I mean, like, we still have something that connects us. Yeah. Anyway. I have to agree. Well, I agree with what you're saying, Tessa, in terms of the fact that everything's gotten so politicized and now everyone's arguing all the time about politics as if there's not this actual human level of existence that maybe we should spend more time, you know, just caring about other people uh, and learning how to live in a world where um, people have a diversity of ideas. I mean, there are flat earthers and germ theorists and ancient alien theorists and whatever, and that's okay. Like we can live in a world where people think really differently uh, without having to be judgmental. And then Riley, I wanted to touch on what you were saying about um, just the overall feeling of things, because I didn't think it was possible, but I'm having the same experience where the COVID thing was such a bummer uh, the whole time. And then yet somehow the Ukraine, this conflict and, and dealing with it has been even more anxiety inducing and even more depressing than the whole COVID thing. And I've been kind of like, I guess my biggest issue has been what I'm perceiving as the propaganda. Like, I feel like at least most of the people around me, if they're listening to mainstream news, if they're listening to NPR, like I'm starting to be like, they have no idea what's really going on in the world. Like, how can we move forward when people are listening to these perspectives that are just completely off base? I mean, with COVID, 
it was like, I'm reading the peer-reviewed science, and then I'm seeing people adamantly saying, I believe in science, when I know the science doesn't say what they're saying. And, and then I'm, I'm trying to show them, you know, here's the peer-reviewed science. It's so frustrating. And the same is true with Ukraine. I mean, whatever your position on Ukraine is, most Americans don't know the the history, the the People's Republics of of uh, Donetsk and Luhansk, you know, or or any of the reasons why they've just heard Russia just unilaterally invaded because Putin is a dictator, and whatever your position is, we need to be educated about what the actual history is, and then we can have these more nuanced conversations. But it's almost as if the propaganda has overtaken the conversation. Everything's gotten so politicized, and then. It's like such a waste of human life. I mean, all the arguments that's going that is going on that are based on people that aren't really fully informed, not having nuanced conversations. Um, it's just it is challenging. I think, and I agree with you so much, Tessa. The solution is to maybe even just ditch the whole intellectual analysis of of these big picture concepts and start treating other people like real human beings that we care about. I mean, that's probably what's going to make the transition to a better world at the end of the day. Yeah. Um, well, it's funny about sort of the, the information war and, and I can totally understand how insane it must be in the U S how one-sided it must be in the media. Um, from the perspective in Russia, of course, it's, it, sort of like the mirror, you know, where it's like you can actually get fined for calling it a war. Yeah. Which is it's so it's so weird. You know, it's such a weird it's such a weird thing to witness. And what's also sort of shows the sort of um, you know, just how incomprehensible the whole thing is. So RT was recently kicked out of Europe basically, as far as, as I understand it, which you know, look, I'm again, I'm against censorship in general. Obviously, I have my own beats with RT, but it's not really important right now. But what's I, what's funny about it, though, what's ironic about this is that Margarita Simonian, who was the RT editor in chief, recently went on Russian state TV and was like, "We need to amend our constitution to allow greater censorship in Russia. Like, we need more censorship in this country." Like we allow too too much freedom of thought. Like we need more censorship in Russia. Wow! This is coming from a woman who's who's you know question more state television outlet just got kicked out of Europe, and so it's like again, you know, it's, it's so hard. I do think that nuance is important. I don't want to deem like say that someone is like the, a great evil and the other side is good or anything like that, but it just shows how man things are so messy. You know, things are so, it's so murky. It's so murky and we've really lost our way. We yeah. really have. And again, going back to what Tessa said, I totally agree. And I do think that more and more, I mean, I know I'm guilty of it. I think it's almost impossible not to get sucked into these sort of arrogant stances where, you know, you, you try to lecture to people or, you know, you look down on people who think differently than you when, when stuff like this happens where it seems like the stakes are so high. And that's one of the de really depressing things about this war, which is it's such a terrible tragedy. And yet people are like, everyone's so stubborn about it. You know, it's like nobody really wants to yeah. seem like, I don't know. It's just very, again, I agree. There's so much, I've, I've never been more, I mean, COVID was bad. And now this, it's like, wow. I, I mean, <laughs> it's like a whole, a whole new level. Yeah. I mean, I totally agree. We've got to learn as a people 
especially since it's the it's the ninety nine point nine percent of us that are getting the the bad end of the deal here. Like, can we can we all not agree that we're getting the bad end of the deal and then stop having these arguments with each other constantly and learn how to be more flexible and open minded to other people's opinions? Tessa, I know you've written about because you were raised in that post Soviet period. Um, one of the things that's been shocking to me, I mean, it was shocking to me in the United States when the lockdowns happened and um, and things, uh, the, you know, our right of freedom of assembly was basically taken away. And, um, and then there was just no sort of conflict about it. There was no, there was no debate about it. And I started to realize how few people actually cared about these freedoms. And like, you know, Riley's talking about censorship being openly debated in the, in Russia right now. Uh, and people in the United States, again, like I've been writing a little bit about this concept of hate speech or these, this slow encroachment on freedom of speech. It's like, people don't have these ideals anymore about what freedom really means. They're certainly not standing up to fight it. And uh, that is what, is really worrisome to me that the vast majority of people seem content uh, to make their inflexible stand on whatever issue it is, and then actually, you know, censor the other side or support, you know, the fact that other people shouldn't even think the way that they're thinking. Like we can't live in a world that that where there's a diversity of ideas and people have respect for other people's individuality. You want to try to answer to that, Tessa? Or I know you're having sound issues. So I think, well, first of all, thank you. And like that splitting, even in the so-called freedom camp, that is driving me crazy because I think the whole point of fighting the great reset is getting bigger than our petty differences. Yeah. And arguing. You know what? I think your ideas are stupid, but do it with love. It's like it's possible yeah. to tell somebody, I think your ideas are stupid, but do it with love. And now I actually, I really feel bad for the people, like specifically in the context of that war in Ukraine. I feel bad for the people who are Ukrainian, who have been in the freedom community and now many prominent voices in the freedom community went all the ways like Putin is a great guy for it. And how do they feel? I'm like, I feel so bad because regardless, like the West can be the Western leadership and the Russian leadership can be horrible people all at the same time. Like we don't right. have to choose which mob leader is the villain. They can both or whatever, like a multipolar world. It can be a multipolar world of multipolar asshole leaders. And then people underneath paying the price. And I think that is what's going on. So it's really not necessary for us to fight with each other, like especially like somebody not in a war zone in America fighting with somebody not in a war zone, whatever, like in another country that is not currently being bombed like it's stupid there's enough trouble in this world and now i think a metaphor i call it like the the ghost of dogma i think this is what is a much bigger problem than any geopolitics in the world fundamentally like on the on the foundational level because now people are fighting over 
like whether viruses are real. I mean, like, I don't care. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure the, the viruses can be something entirely different from what we think, but is it really important yeah. to go at each other's throats over that while they, we're dealing with everything? That's just like not very intelligent. Thinking it through, intelligent, like thinking, trying to understand how it all works. That's beautiful. That's, yeah, but actually attacking other people because they think differently or they don't think it's that important to them. That's just like the stupidest thing you can do when there's the great reset, when there is this existential threat to all of us. So it really bothers me. And I'm trying to be understanding about it as in, like I just called somebody stupid, so that wasn't right. So they're going through something too. So, but that is the worst thing. Like, you know, why do we have to establish this colorless sense and then at the expense that somebody else has to be like not so smart. And I apologize, I just did it myself kind of, right? So so I guess like human. But I, like I try to keep myself in check and uh, at least, you know, like I try, like genuinely. So, I, and I think that all those disagreements on the ideological level are so petty. You can find lots of wrong things with lots of systems like you know in communism and capitalism and this and that and the other if you really want to pick on something or if you really don't don't have to try there's lots of horrible things about each of those systems but like are we really going to solve the existential issue by like trying to be smart and defining our own final and ultimately correct set of talking points? I don't think so. Yeah. Because I think that is what got us in this mess to begin with. When people decided to put their own ideas in God's mouth, for example, yeah. centuries ago, they decided to say, okay, like, uh, God hates gay people. And I know that for sure. Like, in what manner? Like, in what manner do you know that God certainly hates gay people? I mean, it's just like, it's a little presumptuous, right? But how many people suffered for that? So it's just like, it's just, I think human beings are afraid to do it. And they just try to protect, they, us, we, like often try to protect ourselves with that humility and vulnerability that really, like, we don't know shit. And that's just the truth. And we aspire to learn and it's beautiful and it feels great and it's beautiful to know as much as we can, but we do have our limitations. And we, when we try to apply our like energy, whatever you call it, our ability that is designed for loving connection with the infinite, when we try to apply that to the finite, it leads to all sorts of messes because the finite is not designed to handle that. So then we try to go with our capacity for the infinite and try to like create dogma. Like, no, it's this way. And I know for sure. And if somebody says that it's another way, I hurt so much that I'm going to attack you. Well, that's a problem. And I think it's almost our own obligation of self-discipline, of figuring it out internally and deal with that at least in parallel with trying to understand what's happening in the world. Because we go into analytics, then we feel very smart. But then we go south very quickly, I think. I could be wrong, but that's my feeling about it anyway. It's just so important to recognize our own particular 
perspectives are actually flawed and we can have very strong beliefs, but I think the path forward is to have more humility and then have respect for other people's difference of opinions. I mean, I I've been thinking a lot lately, actually. I mean, one of the things, and I've written a little bit about this on my blog is that I just wish that everybody would get together and agree that power needs to be decentralized. Cause I think a lot of these existential questions and these ideological questions I mean, wouldn't it be great if we could have those conversations with our friends in our community and then our community had the power to make the decisions, you know, the decisions about education or healthcare or even banking or, you know, finance. Um, And if we can just decentralize power out of these nation states or these federal governments that are so that have been so empowered, um, then maybe, you know, that's one way out. Can we all just agree to have these conversations, these difficult, challenging philosophical conversations on the local level, uh, and then work together to empower the communities to to be able to actually act on those decisions? Um, And I hope that's the case. I don't, I mean, there's no way out. All the arguing that's going on, it only makes these the the powerful the wealthy uh the people playing these political games on a world level the globalist level it just empowers them for us to be fighting with each other uh and the the saddest part about it is that we have the numbers i mean the people the people of russia have the numbers the people of the united states have the numbers i mean all we have to do is agree uh to unify against the centralization of power Uh, And then we can start, again, having these conversations on a local level, the more difficult conversations. Instead, we're on social media all day having arguments, and then Putin's going to do what he's going to do, or Biden's going to do what he's going to do, or Klaus Schwab, probably on a level above them, is going to do what he's going to do. And they don't care what we argue about on Twitter, right? (laughs) I mean, they could care less. They're just happy that we're arguing with each other. I think you guys. I think you guys really put it well. I don't know if I have much more to add, but yeah, yeah it's just um, like I said, I, more and more. You know, I have to admit it's even difficult. You know, like uh, for example, <clears throat> about two months ago, I was able to write something new almost every day, basically, and it was getting more and more difficult for me to even write anything because I'm just so. I'm like, in, I'm shell shocked in a way. I mean, okay, that's a bad word to use because people are actually shell shocked in Ukraine. But, right. but I mean, I'm like, I'm like, like deer in the headlights, sort of. I don't even know. Like, it's hard to even process where this is going. And I really do. Again, I really do feel like this is early, de- like early months of COVID, where we can't even, we can't even foresee the forced vaccinations, or you know, like the, the a few of us maybe saw the digital IDs coming, but. It's like, I don't think we can even process what's down the road. That's going to, that's the consequences of what's happening right now. And I think that all of us, you know, we got, it's way out of our control, like you said. And that's another scary thing. And so now it's like, what, what do we do guys? (laughs) I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. It's scary. So Yeah. Well, it's been about an hour and a half considering the technical difficulties and everything. I'm really enjoying this conversation, but maybe we ought to go ahead and wrap it up. Um, do you want to you want to let people know where they can find your stuff, Riley, and then we'll let Tessa uh, have some final words? Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, I'm just uh, edwardslavsquat.substack.com. I'm on Twitter, Riley Wagman. Don't use it a lot, but you can find me there if you want. And Yeah. 
Sounds good. And and Tessa, you want to wrap it up with some thoughts? Oh, I, I, I was making a joke and I was on mute. So how typical. I was saying that a great reset is happening on my computer. So I can barely even hear you at this point. But <laughs> it was definitely a great pleasure to talk and it was meaningful and was great to see everybody. And I'm so glad that we took this conversation to a philosophical direction rather than just like yelling at this party or another party. That makes me happy. You want to let people know where they can find your work? I see. I couldn't even hear you. So people can just Google Tessified Robots. It will lead them there. Or on Substack where I write mostly. It's tessa.substack.com. Double S. T-E-S-S-A. At substack.com. Perfect. All right. Thanks, Tessa. And uh, I'll let people know you can find my stuff. Uh, I'm Doug McKenty. You can find it at uh, www.theshiftnow.com. And I'm also on Substack at thepopulouspapers.substack.com. And I'm trying to put out an article a week and trying to figure out how to come up with some kind of a political philosophy that maybe can be a little bit more unifying. and I'm, I'm really actually very appreciative of this conversation. I want to thank both of you for coming on. I mean, not just um, the conversation about Ukraine, but the fact that it kind of flowed into this more philosophical conversation about the frustration that I think we're all feeling with the fact that how powerless, you know, how powerless I think so many of us feel in the, uh, in the face of what's going on. Uh, all the misinformation that's going on seems impossible to fight. Having any kind of deep, real nuanced conversations with people that aren't just this constant arguing amongst the people uh, while on the ground, uh, the oppression, and especially in the Ukraine, the actual uh, devastation of human life. um, It's just pretty challenging. So uh, we'll keep doing what we're doing. We're doing the good work, guys. So thanks for coming on again. And uh, we'll keep you on the list and we'll, we'll, uh, we'll keep doing this every week. And we'll have you both back on, I'm sure, sometime in the future. So we'll keep the conversation going. Uh, Thanks, everybody, for coming. And uh, we'll talk to all of you listening. We'll talk to you next week. Take care.